and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I, and I Think You're Interesting. There are very few late-night shows that I have enjoyed as much as Full Frontal with Samantha B since it debuted in early 2016. It was a show that just hit exactly the right pitch for me in terms of how it was finding ways to talk about big, important topics with both humor and then also I felt like kind of an anger and a frustration and just a sense that things were not progressing as rapidly as maybe they could that I found very effective. And I have sort of in the past found late night television to be an imperfect messenger for a lot of things and uh, it felt to me like it had become rather stayed and I watched that first episode literally the first episode of Full Frontal and said wow this is something different I'm really into this so today we have some of the folks who work as correspondents on the show they have other jobs on the show as well you're most likely to know them from the pieces where they go out into the field and figure out the pulse of the nation through comedic means So I'm really excited to have with me today the correspondence from Full Frontal with Samantha B on TBS. I have Ashley Nicole Black, Alana Harkin, and Mike Rubens. Hello, everyone. Hi. Hey. Hi. How are you? <laughs> we're good. We're good. This show has always been like my favorite late night show since it debuted. Always. And, yeah, always for the last, you know, 500 years. Uh, since it debuted, <laughs> and I feel like it debuted in a place of frustration with sort of America in a a time when things were pretty fraught. Uh, And that frustration has not gone away. And I'm wondering, uh, I'm going to throw this to Ashley first. I'm kind of wondering, how do you find ways to keep that from that tone of frustration and and even sometimes anger from making the show, I guess, hard to watch? Because I think you do it very well, but it's it's a hard line to walk sometimes. Yeah, I think that like that the only reason to have frustration with something is because you love it. So I think it's finding that um, balance between, yes, there is frustration with the way things are going now, but the reason we're frustrated is because we care about the country. And I think there is like a really beautiful patriotism to the show and finding like balancing the frustration with, but we love our country. We love the people who live here. We want everyone to be happy and safe and have a good life. And we're just screaming, you know, we're really screaming like we want to keep all our friends safe. Mm. <laughs> uh, Alana or Mike, have there been times when you felt like uh, this is this is something we need to pull back from, or do you do you tend to push it further in that in that regard of that tone? I, I do think that there's there's um, oh, this is Alana, by the way. Um, <laughs> the, I do feel there, there's definitely times where we will tell jokes where like uh, this is too this is too mean, or this pushes in the wrong direction, or yeah. And and we often do want to find ways of uh, humanizing the people that we speak with, mm. so that it's not just let's let's punch this person over and over again. Yeah, cool. cool. We're pretty um, we're pretty good about though when we get into a field meeting and and we're sort of having a you know a joke meeting on a certain project we sort of or a certain piece we we kind of we there's a lot of creative freedom absolutely like we all say and we all know that there's some jokes that cannot leave the room and then we go back and we have another pass and we say I can't believe I was like actually gonna tell, say that, tell that joke we can't tell that joke uh so we do we do kind of we go over it a few times and then and then ultimately we find ways to push it further I guess in some ways I think about like for journalists there are libel laws where like there's more that you can say about Donald Trump before you've you've committed libel as opposed to just some random citizen who's never been, you know, in the news before. Do you have sort of those lines in your head of like when a joke is too far sort of adjusts for who the person is? Yeah, or also like who is really 
at fault of the thing you're upset about. So a lot of the Mm. things that we're talking about, obviously it's politics. So who's actually in power? You can be upset about someone like saying an annoying thing, but at the end of the day, are they the congressman who wrote the law? Then maybe we should focus on that person. Mm, Excellent. Um, What's a typical week like for you guys on the show? Like what, how does it, how does it play out? How does it start? And how does it sort of become more heated as you get closer to uh, showtime? Do we have a typical week? Well, we don't. The three of us have very different weeks. <laughs> we all have. Yeah, we all. The the thing that's really interesting about um, our jobs on, on Full Frontal, we're correspondents, but we also all do multiple different things. Both Mike mm. and I are segment directors on pieces. Ashley is a writer on the show. Um, I do warm up. Like we do. We all do different jobs that uh, depending on the field piece that we're all performing in could change from week to week. But I know that Ashley has a very specific schedule. <laughs> yeah, I, I do as a writer. Um, So we taped a show on Wednesday, obviously. So Thursday, Friday, we're usually working on longer term pieces, more evergreen pieces or um, more research heavy pieces. Um, Now that the show has moved to Wednesdays, we take the weekend off, which is lovely. Um, (laughs) And then Monday, Tuesday, we're usually writing the act one. Um, And then on Wednesday, we do a rehearsal and we rewrite the entire show line by line. And then we shoot the show. Yeah, working in the field department, if you if you have uh, you're working on an idea for something, you know that that has its own life and its sort of you know sine wave curve of like you you pitch an idea or someone pitches an idea and it's approved and then you have to make sure that you can get everyone and figure out how you're going to do it and you go shoot it and you come back and you edit it, you know, and that could take a week, it could take two weeks, it could take longer, um, and so you you know that has its own sort of rhythm that is separate from the um, the weekly aspect of the show that that. Uh, certainly that Ashley has to deal with much more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those field pieces uh, kind of give me the sense of how those how those generate. Like, is that, do you come up with your own pitches? Are there assignments from, I, I guess, an editor of some sort? Like, how do you come up with where this is the idea we're going to do and, and this is how we're going to pursue it? Well, it's pretty much a, it's a mix of both. I mean, either you come to uh, to a meeting with with an idea you want to pitch, or there's another field producer who's like, I have a loose idea, and then we all you know pitch in and we all you know figure out if it's something that's shootable. Um, mm. But I mean, ultimately, it, it, the pieces that everyone's most excited about are the ones we end up shooting. Yeah. So yeah, everyone, it's very much a group effort there. Everyone is constantly coming up with ideas. And then as, as Alana said that, you know, you might have an idea for something and then you have to find a way, an angle that makes it a good story for us. Cause there's a ton of good stories out there that we want to tell, but we're like, I don't, we don't know how to make this funny. You know, we don't know how to tell this so that it's appropriate for our show. Um, but you know, stuff sort of, you know, evolves and moves forward. And finally Sam is like, let's, let's do these. And then we figure out how to do them. Yeah, it really goes through the filter of Sam. At the end of the day, the she, she, Sam filter. <laughs> yeah, it, there is a Sam filter. We all we we you could be extremely excited about an idea, but if it doesn't resonate with Sam, it doesn't get made. She's a tyrant. That's a <laughs> tyrant. <laughs> Her name is on the show. She's so pushy. <laughs> Uh, one of the things I do love about the show is its focus on some of those field pieces and those correspondent things. Like that was always what I loved on The Daily Show, and I always loved when Sam would do them, and I think she's really great at them. What is a thing that you have learned from working with her that's made you better at that kind of assignment? Oh, Sam is 
literally like one of the best interviewers who's ever sat down to interview. And when you watch her do it, it's like magic. Like obviously when people, most of the people we talk to are not used to being on television or if they are, they're in politics. And so they're used to like very much sticking to their talking points. And so it's weird for people to go on a comedy show. And she walks into the room and she, within three questions, has people inviting her. I literally watched a man invite her home for Thanksgiving. Like she just... (laughs) is able to put people so at ease and make them so comfortable and make them feel so heard and they want to talk to her and they want to say more and more to her. And part of that is just like her personality, which I I try to, you know, emulate how comfortable she's able to make people. Yeah, she, she's just so experienced and such an expert at that. And so much of what happens in the field is, you know, you're ad-libbing. So, and, and she's just so good at that. And at making stuff that you're like, this this is not going to be funny. And she finds a way to make it funny. Mm. Can you think of a time when something maybe changed significantly from like initial pitch to what ended up on TV? <laughs> all of us, everyone, every <laughs> single time, pretty much. Because you don't know how an interview is going to go. I mean, it, especially or one one of the biggest changes I've I've seen is like say for instance with um, our inauguration piece. We we the three of us uh, with uh, our other correspondent Amy. We we had a certain way that we thought that the interviews were going to go, that people were going to respond to us, and that evening we said. Okay, this is ha- this is this is going in a different direction. We need to respond to how this how the people are responding to us, and so we kind of changed the direction of the piece because of that. Because we don't know what some. I mean, you could write a million questions and a million responses, but everyone is individual, and you don't know what you're going to get. And Ashley had, had said this previously on another interview we were doing is that like we're all uh, we're improvisers and the one thing about being an improviser and this is why I always encourage actors to take uh, improvisation classes because it teaches you how to listen you have to be a really good listener you have to be listening to everything that they're saying Mm. and in the moment either think of like a joker or a response that we've prepared ahead of time that we kind of like oh if they go this way we're going to respond this way or just be a good listener and respond as a comedian and respond authentically in the moment and that will change the direction of a piece. Mm. Yeah, I think sometimes people want to be like, oh, well, you manipulated them into saying that or you just wanted that piece to be that. And it's so the opposite. Like that piece that uh, Alana mentioned, we scrapped our whole piece because people were not doing what we expected them to do. And what we showed you was where those people actually were and what they actually had to say. Yeah, we thought that was going to, the piece was about gloating. Like we thought they're going to gloat. These people are going to be so celebratory and stuff. And instead there was this weird almost dirge-like atmosphere. Like, people mm. were like, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, yeah, I'm excited, I guess. You know, and that <laughs> that really became what the piece was about. Mm. And they were really nice. We are like, well, what would you say to liberals who, you know, are scared about Trump? And they're like, oh, I hope they feel better. Like, yeah. they, were they were all, all really kind. It was really nice. Mm. We've it's also good. determined, though, people are nicer to Ashley. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> well, people tend to think, I have had people be like, after the interview, they'll be like, so is this for your college TV station or whatever? <laughs> like, oh. people think that I'm a child. Maybe that's why they're nice to me. <laughs> you know what? The, the fun thing about the show is it often feels like we have our own college TV station. <laughs> you know, there's just sort of an ad hoc way that's, that we do stuff that has sort of that freedom. That sort of that scrappy feeling really uh, carries over to the show. And I, what is something that w- kind of came up as a pitch or kind of came up as an idea and you were like, this will never work. And then it ended up being just like amazing or, or, or terrific. Everything I've ever done. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. I never think Mike's pitches are going to work. <laughs> <laughs> But 
we all get in there and we all fix them, Ashley. <laughs> right. We all just offer so much support to Mike. And he comes through in the end. Yeah. Men you guys can are the best. be funny. Oh, <laughs> yeah, Mike is, I mean, Mike, you're our only man on the show. I am the only man on the show. Yeah, Ha-ha! how did you get through the filter of Sam? See, don't, we shouldn't be talking about this because she's going to she notice know? at some point. <laughs> it's going to ruin everything. I don't know if there's any, I mean, everything I think is always sort of a struggle. Where, and, and there's a lot of stuff that's just experimental of just like, let's try this. And and sometimes it work and, works and sometimes it doesn't. And I think what one of the things that's really great about the show and about Sam is that she's been so supportive of creative efforts and of ways to sort of expand the form and think of different, completely different ways of doing something and to, uh, to take creative risks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I how do you, how does sort of what was your each of your separate journeys to the show like how did you uh, first I guess end up in comedy and then end up working on this this program? Uh, mine's super classic. I dropped out of my PhD program as <laughs> most comedians do. Um, I my parents got me a class at the Second City just so I'd have something fun to do on the weekends. And uh, very quickly, I was like, "Oh, this is actually the thing I want to do." But I was in a doctoral mm. program, and your parents. So wait a minute, like I, I don't even know the story. So you <laughs> dropped out of your PhD program, and then your parents put you in comedy classes. No, 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 no. <laughs> I moved to Chicago. They're to- like, "Oh, finally, she can make some money." <laughs> I know, like this is no <laughs> one's Every story. Parents dream. No, I had moved to Chicago to go to Northwestern, and I was doing my doctoral program, and I wasn't having fun. So my parents bought me a class at Second City on the weekends. So like, I'd go to school all week. And then on the weekends, I'd go to Second City. And then I very quickly realized that I was just like living for the weekend. Um, Wait, so. do they still think you're in the doctoral program? Have you told them that? <laughs> my, Are they full of regret right now? Or <laughs> They were literally until like when my parents saw me on TV, they were like, oh, you can succeed at this. We're fine now. <laughs> like, oh, that's hilarious. They just didn't, you know, they didn't want to be paying my rent for the rest of my life, which is fair. <laughs> That's fair. Well, I guess I, I mean, I, I was, I'm an actor and uh, Sam and I met up in Canada. <laughs> I just say Canada all the time. Like I can't, I can't speak, if you pick a specific place because no one will know where it is, Toronto. And um, we, you know, we were sort of lady, like lady actors and comedians. Bubble. And we thought, okay, well, we have to, you have to create your own work to actually work because no one is throwing jobs at us. So we, uh, we created a comedy Troop and we uh, called uh, the Atomic Fireballs and we did that for years and wrote material and um, and it's always comedy has always been one of those uh, like I I always if people really are passionate about going into comedy I think it's a great idea because it is one of those fields that you you can find stages <laughs> you really can yeah. you can you can find mm-hmm. a stage and you can do something um, and so ultimately I guess what brought me here to full frontal is uh, just my years of working with Sam and, you know, we kind of have the same sensibility and uh, I guess she trusted me to do something (laughs) on the show. That was actually like one of the things that I said to my parents when I told them I was leaving my PhD to do comedy was like, the thing about comedy is I get to decide. I can make it whenever I want. I can put up a show. I don't have to wait for someone to hire me to do the thing. Oh, absolutely. It's, I think it's a really, I mean, people would, who would say to me, oh, is it crazy to go? I want to go into comedy. Is that crazy? I'm like, no, it's absolutely fabulous. Mm-hmm. Unless you want to be, okay, wait a minute. Unless you <laughs> want to be a dentist or you're driven to be, you know, a lawyer and that you feel really passionate about that, absolutely do that because it's, I'm not, right. it wasn't easy. Like I had no money for years. I like, 
you know, would hope that a club would give me a, you know, a dinner <laughs> when I'd go perform <laughs> at it. It wasn't a sexy lifestyle, but, you know, I guess now doing this job now, I'm like, you know, I know I've put in my years. <laughs> Definitely. Mm-hmm. How about you, Mike? Uh, I was a, a producer for The Daily Show actually a long time ago, back when Stephen Colbert was still on the show. And, and I worked with Sam back then, which was great. And I just adored working with Sam. And then I uh, left The Daily Show and, and did other stuff. And then when Sam was you know, launching her show and we started talking. She's like, you want to do this? And I was like, yeah, it sounds great. And so that's that's how that happened. <laughs> uh, I, what what has sort of this background in comedy, and maybe, maybe Alina and uh, Ashley can speak a little bit more to this, but your background in doing comedy and doing live shows, how has that helped you in terms of being an interviewer, in terms of getting people to open up about stuff for the show? Oh, so much. I was saying earlier, like my background really is in improv and sketch. And the whole, when you go out to do improv, you go out with nothing, no script, no preconceived notion, no nothing. And the only thing you're there to do is listen to that other person, say yes to them and build on what they're giving you. And not even just what they say with their words, but what their body is doing, how they're feeling, how you can pick up on that little, like I remember I was interviewing a woman at the RNC who who was a Ted Cruz supporter. And I asked her, well, how does it feel now to switch over to Trump? And she said, it's fine. And I just watched in the corner of her (laughs) eye, it start, like she started to have like a little muscle twitch in the corner of her eye. And I asked her two more questions and she was in tears because of course, if you're a Ted Cruz supporter, you are not just fine to switch over to Donald Trump. They're incredibly different candidates. But I think like that ability to notice that little piece of sadness or that little snark or that little whatever feeling that's behind the words and go after that absolutely comes from just like years of improvising and being on stage and trying to engage with people on an emotional level. Everyone should take improv. Like I'm listening Literally to you going like, all family members should take an improv class before Thanksgiving. I say that, I literally say that all the time. Like improv teaches you to be so generous of people in conversations. And I I wish everyone would take improv. Chemtrails are killing us all. Yes, and? (laughs) (laughs) The man on the streets that we do are really like, that's kind of a great example of what Ashley's talking about. Like you just have to, and it's really great for us because we work in a little bit of a bubble at Full Frontal, even though we're engaged in the news. It's really, and that's why Sam loves uh, when we get out, out on the street, you know, and talk to people because we get to we get right. to see what other people are thinking. And um, and it's just it's just a really great way to engage with the public. You know, it's it's fun. So at Vox, the conversation on election night and then if, then the next couple of days after when the result was very different from what sort of most of the media predicted would happen uh, was was sort of very uh, it was very uh, pointed in terms of how we were going to pivot to covering an administration we didn't expect to be covering, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, what was that conversation like at Full Frontal? Like what, the, those days and weeks after the election, because I think you guys pivoted very well, but like what what were those moments like inside the show? It was that day, right? We had a show. That, that, we had a show the next day. We had a show the next day and we had, um, let's say, a very different show prepared. Mm-hmm. And we had gone out and we'd <laughs> shot a field piece that was a very different field piece and everything. So I think we were all um, devastated the night of the election. And then the next day had to come in and fix everything. Our faces oh. were strangely wet for yeah. days. You guys yeah. got to come in the next day. We worked all night. We didn't well, go home. I mean, I worked all night too. I worked two <laughs> nights in a row. I went backwards in time and worked two nights in a row. 
Well, I remember in the middle of the night, I had shot a piece for the for that show where it was just people hi- like high fiving, <laughs> you know, Sam high fiving, right. you know, John Stewart high fiving all these, you know, different people that, that it was just purely a celebration. And I, and it took so long to produce. And I thought, oh no, I okay. It's awful that Donald Trump is president. It's the worst thing ever. What about the cold open I shot as well? <laughs> so, you know, and then we had to, and that morning I walked in and we grabbed a camera and we had to shoot Sam having a, it was a dream. She had, we had to turn it into a dream. And that, I, I that whole morning and, and re-editing that was just soul crushing. <laughs> Did having that work um, sort of help you focus at a time when a lot of people were having uh, – a lot of people who had hoped for a different outcome were having trouble focusing? I found it really hard. <laughs> it was hard. I wanted <laughs> to take a total news break. Like I didn't want to read Twitter and Facebook and the news and everything. Like it felt toxic and I couldn't, I couldn't even look at that stuff. But the job requires you to look at that stuff. So I don't know about you guys, but I, it was tough. But it's, but yeah, but now I think it is nice to be back in the swing and sort of like, okay, okay, we're not dead yet. We're going to keep working. Yeah, I think like with any experience, you have to go through all the stages of grief and having to do this job just forced us to go through them faster. Like the moment that we realized what the outcome was going to be, we had to write a show. So we like really didn't have the option to just like sit down and cry or get angry or be in denial or anything. We had to start writing. Um, and so I think like, that's probably, I don't think any therapist that are listening is like, that's a great way to process feelings. But I think that like, we got through the process a little faster because we just didn't have time to stop and indulge in every stage of grief. And we knew that we weren't going to get kicked out of the country. You know what I mean? Like that was the thing is sort of like, you can't indulge too much because you're, because you're also thinking there's a lot of people out there that are going to get greatly affected by what just happened. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if all, if all the promises that he's been promising, you know, through this campaign, if he lives up to them, right. there's going to be a lot of people who are in trouble. And as we can see what's happened with the past, it's 11 weeks. He said that he, he, it was, <laughs> he said that he's been the president for 13 weeks, but uh, counting is he's often hard. like president for 13 weeks. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot to be worried about. So mm. one thing I found is that there is a, a very different uh, feel around when Donald Trump was not yet president, but the, you know, we, you knew he was going to be. And then when he actually was president, there was kind of this feeling of, oh, right, this is happening. Now it's, it's, it's settled. Now there's like this form of what his presidency is going to be. Have you, has it felt different to you as you write about him as president, president versus president elect or, or as a candidate? Does it feel settled? It feels like a constant, just constant burbling chaos. And I, I mean, Mm. I feel like the one the one minor upside in this whole thing is just that all of us realizing at the same time, like, just the depths of incompetence at every level. Like, yeah, they're able to break a bunch of stuff, but it doesn't seem like they're able to really take that stuff, the shattered remains of the country, and build the murderous robot that they were planning on making, at least not yet. Um, so I think mm. there's at least a, I felt, not relief so much, but like a s- tiny little lowering of the amount of terror that I felt. I think during the transition, there was a lot of, a lot of the critique was like, we'll give him a chance, wait and see what he's going to do. And that critique is gone. Like whether or not you agree, if someone is saying like, I don't think there should be a Muslim ban, there's no, we'll wait and see. Like we already know he did it. <laughs> it's, so that sort of critique of like, oh, you're not giving him a chance is gone. Um, oh, you're just, liberals are 
being chicken little, acting like the sky is falling. Now that it's actually falling, we can just have the conversation and say, is this a good thing or is it a bad thing? What blew my mind was that I thought, okay, well, you you won. You did it. You got it. It's yours. You are the president of the United States. Surely, surely you will change a little bit. Surely you will calm down. You will you will rise to the occasion. Or even just enjoy it. They or don't even, just even be enjoying maybe having smile. one. Maybe authentically smile. <laughs> just once. And in, mm. and it has never happened. And I thought, you know, to me, and someone who doesn't ever seem to have a sense of humor, just terrifies me. Yeah, yeah. You can make jokes about pretty much any president on a very basic superficial level, like George W. Bush had a lot of malapropisms. Uh, Barack Obama could be very dry uh, and sort of uh, wonky. Uh, Donald Trump has many, many, many things that are sort of superficially funny about him. But it, it to like really push past that is kind of what marks great political comedy. And I'm wondering, what have you found uh, not funny, but worth satirizing about Trump that maybe isn't immediately apparent? Well, we did a whole piece about how we don't think he can read. That was very well researched. <laughs> we watched depositions and found you know evidence of him not being able to read. So that was on another level, I think. That was so enjoyable. It's such a funny piece. It was just so, you know what? I feel like, to, thank you for bringing that up again. Once a week, I'm yeah. going to watch that. <laughs> yeah. Just, just one to treasure. I do think it's a particularly full frontal kind of humor to say something so bratty and nasty, but to also have research to back it up. Like, we're not going to just say people can't read. We're going to show you a video of him not reading. We're, you know, we're still journalists, kind of. Oh, my gosh. There, um, there was kind of a weird piece in the, I think, the New York Times last year that that sort of was like uh, the full frontal with Samantha Bee is sort of like propping up the liberal bubble. Oh, and, Ross, yeah. You know, yeah. Maybe that's true. I don't know. Maybe that's true. But at the same time, it feels like you guys go outside of that that so-called bubble so often with your reported pieces and your field pieces. And I am, what from going out into America, what have you sort of realized about America over the course of how long the show's been on the air? Well, I mean, I have an interesting perspective because I'm actually Canadian. And so I I think think that makes it a boring perspective. (laughs) Well, uh, I don't know if you know this. I'm just going to break it to you now. (laughs) Maybe you want to retract your statement. Samantha Bee is also Canadian. Oh, Oh, my gosh. Um, So uh, she Sam also uh, often has a really good time watching my reactions to everything because she went through it when she moved here for The Daily Show. Um, It's really blown my mind about, you know, how things have it's this is an incredible country. What I love about it is people are so passionate um, people are incredibly passionate here and they are, you know, Canadians are a little bit more passive sometimes. And I love that. Um, but there's so many things that blow, like I just can't get my head wrapped around the fact that there's no universal health care. Mm. That to me, because I come from a, from, from a land of, you know, it doesn't matter if you have a job and you live in your parents' basement and it doesn't, it doesn't matter if I'm getting, needing my gallbladder out and you need your gallbladder out we're both getting our gallbladder out. It doesn't matter. Like we're, you're, we're not, there's no extra payment mm. and it's, it's not free. We pay for it in our taxes. But to me, without universal health care, I, I don't understand how there can be equality. Right. That's, mm. that's the big rub for me. I'm like, how, if you don't think this person is worth living, <laughs> mm. how can you, how can we live in an equal society? And that I can't, I, that to me, I just can't get my head wrapped around. And there's little things like that, that, um, that I find are quite complicated. Let me let me just jump in and, and say, at, like, as an outsider, as someone from Canada, do you have a sense of why that is from having talked to Americans and observed them over the past 18 months? The only thing I can come up with is, uh, is fear. Mm. 
is a is a little bit of entitlement of uh, things that I've heard of. Well, you know, I like I get up every morning and and I go out and I work and I do this and I I wasn't given everything and I'm like, well, actually, the who you're the person who's talking to me right now. I know that you grew up in a very affluent home. And I know that your education was paid for. Mm. So please don't put yourself on the same level as somebody who has not had the same opportunities as you. Mm. And just assume that you should have be on an equal pay level, that that they should be, you know, have the same opportunities as you as, you know, and and often the, these people who are who are saying this to me are white. Mm. And uh and and I that is a that is something that is a is a is a standpoint that um fundamentally it it really irks me and it really actually upsets me. Um and I and I I don't understand it. Mm. I, I I don't know if I ever will. <laughs> yeah, previous to fake news being a thing, um we had done a piece and I talked to people and in conversation realized for the first time, like we were talking to people about we're asking people at the RNC if they could say Black Lives Matter. And every person kind of get had the same talking points of what they would say in response to that. And within a couple of questions, they would immediately admit that they actually didn't know anything about it. You know, they had read one mm-hmm. article online or they had seen one short segment, you know, on Fox or something like that. And then we're very curious and like would listen to another point of view. And I had gone into that assuming, and this is a fault and problem with me, I had gone into that assuming that people who don't have support for the Black community, it's because they have hate in their heart or they're just Mm -hmm. racist and they just hate Black people and that's why they don't like these things. And then when I actually talked to them, I realized that it was because someone was lying to them. It was because they had consumed Mm -hmm. a lot of fake news before that really like right before that was a term that they they were all not all they were 98% very lovely very compassionate people who would be kind to any human who they came across but the only media they were consuming was lying to them on a daily basis and so those are the things they thought were true and they had a lot of conflict about that you could hear in their voices the emotion behind i know what i'm saying sounds mean or hateful but this is the information i have and it must be true Um, And I remember, I'm about to drop a name, everyone. But um, right after that, I met Cory Booker and he asked me, like, what do you think is the biggest problem facing America right now? And we had a conversation where we were both like, I think the biggest problem is that it seems like we're getting two completely different streams of news and information. And then it was like a couple months later when, um, you know, the Russian controversy and fake news and all that stuff started entering the the conversation. Mm. I think I've, I've I sort of experienced what I'd experienced back at the Daily Show a long time ago, which is that you meet people who have views that you think are often crazy. But like Ashley said, you know, often they're just they're people that you like. You know, they're people that you would hang out with or you'd have a conversation with or you they would help you if you were in trouble and vice versa. Um, but but they have strange views. W- one thing I feel that that has changed in the that intervening period of time is the rise of all the, you know, before there was Fox News, but now there's Breitbart and there's all these, you know, websites that have a really strong right-wing point of view. And I I feel like those people who read that, the people we meet are the people who are in the bubble, Mm -hmm. you know? And I wanted to say to them, they'd say, well, you're just in a bubble. And I'd be like, you know what? I live in a city where I'm surrounded by people from all over the country and the world of all different backgrounds, um, of all different socioeconomic levels that I interact with. And, you know, have to read all these different news sources, right, left and center. Don't, 
I'm not in a bubble. Mm-hmm. What makes comedy an effective tool at sort of puncturing that that right wing bubble? Because you'll note that like even even Donald Trump seems seems to watch Saturday Night Live. <laughs> I don't know. Is he is he watching it because he enjoys comedy? <laughs> I don't think so. I think he's trying to. It's, it's like a science experiment. He's trying to understand it. Is this where I laugh? <laughs> I don't get it. Comedy. I, you know, it's it's um it's such a. Re- Sometimes I just find it such a relief that I somehow pick this. <laughs> I didn't become a dentist because it is like it's so cathartic to be able to. Um, you know, this is what we have that a lot of journalists don't is that we can explore a story, but then we we get to come at it from a comedic angle, mm. um, which is thank the Lord we get to be able to do that because we can kind of, you know, puncture the story in a different way. And uh, it gives us the ability to, to laugh at a situation where, where most other news outlets wouldn't be able to do that. Mm. And so, to be more honest in a weird and way. And to be about very something. honest. And call out the game that is behind the story. Because we're not under the same rules as a journalist in terms of they can report, well, there's this, but we can say, Mm. we can call bullshit. Yeah. We're allowed to call bullshit. We can have a very strong opinion on it. Yeah. I think also like comedy is dependent on agreement. Like when a whole audience of people laughs at something on a very basic level, they're all agreeing on the premise of the joke. And right now we're at a place where things are so polarized that even the most obvious basic things like should children be able to eat lunch at school, we're arguing about. And at the base of everybody's heart, everyone thinks we should do that. But because we've been split up into two teams, you have to fight against the other team. And I think comedy is one of the one times where everyone gets in a room together and just agrees to the basic premise of the joke. Mm. Mm, excellent. Uh, one thing that's sort of over the last, uh, you know, 20 years since really since The Daily Show started, um, it feels like at the start of that show, there was a, a sense that they could go out and, and sort of get people to talk to them because they were a little more under the radar. But now, 20 years later, people are really hip to this sort of informational comedy, if you will. I'm wondering, have you have you found that have you found it to be harder to get people to open up or is it still, are they still more willing to sort of talk to somebody from Full Frontal or, you know, John Oliver or something like that than they would be, you know, 60 minutes? Depends who they are. Mm-hmm. I, even when I was at The Daily Show, there was an evolution of people being like, sure, I'll talk to you too. Wait, who? No, I'm not going to talk to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I certainly have had the experience then and I have the experience now where you talk to someone who's very right wing or, you know, someone who you think is not would not be a fan of the show. And I've often had conversations being like, I, I'm never talking to you. I'm not talking to you. Love the show though, <laughs> which always surprises me. Yeah, I, I actually, I did a piece uh, on Smart Guns that was on the show yesterday. And one of the people that we actually, I, I interviewed, but didn't make it into the piece was the president of the Gun Owners of America. And I remember pulling up to his office thinking, I can't believe he's agreed to talk to me. Mm. And I think he almost did it uh, because he, he just wanted to see what it was going to be like. Mm. I mean, it was it was a very funny conversation that didn't end up really fitting into the piece. But he was one person that I was shocked that agreed because we, we could not be on more opposite ends of the table in terms of our, our beliefs. Right, right. Who's someone that you've talked to for the show that you have found that you've been like very surprised by uh, like how easy it was to talk to them or how interesting you found their viewpoint, even if you disagreed with it or, or something along those lines? Glenn Beck. Mm, interesting. What was that like? Um he was at first very nervous about doing the interview and um, I nearly tanked the interview <laughs> by not doing a good job of like explaining what it would be like. 
Um, but so this was, you know, something that, you know, Samantha sat down with him and, uh, and Glenn is a really fascinating person. And I, I disagree with him about so many different things. And yet he was so open and so willing in the end to talk about stuff and to make fun of himself and to talk about certain issues. And he sort of gave as good as he got. Uh, and I, and I walked away thinking that, that Glenn is another one of those people that, you know, cause I used to be so angry at Glenn Beck. But I do feel like if something really bad was happening, you know, Glenn Beck would hide you in his basement if he if something really bad happened. Mm. Like he's not he's he's a he's a good guy was my impression. Mm. Mm. Excellent. You're doing this uh, this uh, White House Correspondents Dinner alternate take. I think it's called not the White House Correspondents Dinner. That's right. Uh, what, what was sort of the genesis of that idea and what made this the, the right time to try that beyond the obvious answer of what made this the right time to try that? Well, the genesis of the idea came from Sam. I mean, she she had the idea and she thought that it would be um, it would be a great way for us to support journalists in, in a way that we know that they were not going to get supported by the president. Right. We, we saw we saw it coming. She saw it coming very early. So um, the idea was was really brilliant at the time. And it's not it's certainly not an event that's competing with the White House Correspondents Dinner. We are we are I don't, I don't know what would you call it where their sister we're like um, their sister show. Yeah, their little <laughs> sister who's like dancing in the background while they're <laughs> trying to give their important speech. Yeah. Just going, we love you. We love you. Yeah. <laughs> Pay attention to us. One time I was in a play and my little brother yelled out from the audience, that's my sister. She's great. Like, that's what we're doing. <laughs> well, the fact of the matter is that, like, everything that we produce, field, you know, field pieces or studio pieces, they all come from the, they're all, you know, a jump off from a news piece. I mean, we we could not do our job right. without journalists mm. doing their job. Like, we, 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 we couldn't. So this is really an evening where we're celebrating them mm. in many different exciting ways that we can't tell you about, but that you should tune in totally. on April 29th. I'm sorry, what was that date? April 20th, <laughs> Saturday. It's a Saturday, so that's exciting. It's an hour-long show. Uh, we'll, the show will be on uh, the following Wednesday again. It Ooh. will be a repeat. I'm learning things. I'm learning um, things, too. It's... Uh, yeah, so it's uh it's a it's going to be a huge night and it's going to be a really it's going to be obviously the spirit of 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 full frontal with Samantha B. It's not going to be the White House Correspondents Dinner. It's it's our show um with some new exciting elements that you definitely don't want to miss. Huh. Um <laughs> I, I you had mentioned that you sort of you need these journalists to do your job. What is uh what is a source of information you found very helpful that maybe uh, would not be expected, you know, beyond like the New York Times or Washington Post or something like that? Atlanta. <laughs> oh, yeah. 11 Alive. 11 Alive. We do watch a lot. There's a lot of like small local papers and small local networks that we use a mm. lot. So like we have a really great uh, relationship with 11 Alive, which is the news in Atlanta. They do some of the most entertaining investigative journalism. They There's videos of them like literally chasing Congress people, yelling questions that like they are going to get that question answered. Uh, Tampa Bay Times, we've gotten a lot of stories from um, they're just little outlets that are like actually in the Senate when they pass the bill and asking questions and stuff like that. Yeah, super, super passionate. And I mean, that that is, I guess, and they are the quintessential, like they are who, what I love about America. <laughs> Let's go get the story. <laughs> Let's, we don't even need to run right now, but we're going to run. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we, we end the show each week uh, with some of the same questions for our guests. And since there are three of you, I'm going to split them up among the three of you. 
Um, but uh, Mike, Uh-oh. I want to know who's the person that you've learned the most from but never met. Oh, I, I want you to know that what happened there is that at that moment, Alana raised her hand. <laughs> <laughs> so if I hadn't met Alana, <laughs> the person I learned the most from but haven't met, I, you know, this <laughs> uh, David Foster Wallace, mm. Mm. honestly, mm. because I remember reading his writing and being like, wow, this guy can do, he can do right high, he can write low, he's so brilliant, he can talk about stuff that you think wouldn't be funny or interesting and make it funny. Mm. I felt like I learned a lot from him. Interesting. Um, Alana, uh, what is your worst pop culture outing, whether it's a bad movie date or you took some friends to a concert they hated, something like that? Oh my goodness. My Listen, if you if we hang out together, I can almost make any bad pop culture outing turn into something that I can enjoy. <laughs> I will find something because first of all, I have two children, and that means I actually got out and <laughs> went to do something fun. Um, one that has gone awry, or that I just thought I can't believe that I'm here right now. Um, <laughs> well, it's not pop culture, but I, I probably said the inauguration. <laughs> Why am I? I never thought I would be here right now. No, honestly, I, I mean, listen, I thought that I was going to feel that I went to a Metallica concert right. and I thought, oh my, I'm do not like, like I am not a Metallica fan. I've never have been in my entire life. I'm not into it. I became such a metalhead at that. I was just like, <laughs> I finally get it. You're supposed to see Metallica live. <laughs> And I honestly couldn't hear a single thing for about 10 days. <laughs> so I see, see how, look, look at what I just, I just put a positive spin on it. <laughs> Wonderful. And finally, uh, Ashley, what's the last uh, piece of pop culture, whether it was a book or TV show, movie, game, whatever that you consumed and, and what did you think of it? Oh boy. I have been watching um, so much great British baking show. <laughs> so good. And then I ran out of them and I was having like withdrawals. And a friend of mine was like, there's this show called Escape to the Country. And it's British people who live in the city <laughs> who want to buy a house in the country. And it's like all of the like soothing accents of Great British Breaking Show. But you there's also like these real estate agents who apparently entire life depends on getting these people to buy a house. Like they're just so like, did you like the house? Oh, I seem to have failed. I hope you like the next house. And it's just really important to them that people pick the house. But also I'm learning a lot about England because it's every episode is like, I'm a teacher and he works at the post office and we have $3 million to spend on 25 houses. And you're just like, what is this? country how how are they doing this there's a couple that had nine kids and they bought two houses oh my gosh do you watch hgtv no i my mom loves it you need to get on it because like there is people that are like i've got a seven fixer upper watch fix i watch fixer upper every single tuesday it's like my therapy from nine to ten because they'll it's in waco texas and people are like i've got sixty thousand dollars and that's what they have to buy the house. To buy a five-bedroom house. And yeah. do the renovation. <laughs> but you know what it is? And it's I've, beautiful. I've only ever lived in Los Angeles, Chicago, and New York. So obviously my my idea of how much it costs to buy a house is the skewed one. Right. But it's I highly recommend Escape to the Country when you Escape run out of British baking show. <laughs> Good. I, I've learned a lot about the people I work with. <laughs> During, the, <laughs> during this interview. Well, thank you so much for dropping by uh, Ashley Nicole Black, Alana Harkin, and Mike Rubens. The uh, Not the White House Correspondents' Dinner airs on TBS on April 29th, and Full Frontal airs Wednesday nights. Thank, thank you. you. We should have harmonized our thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> 
I Think You're Interesting is executive produced and hosted by Todd Vanderwerf. In case you haven't guessed, that's the voice you're hearing right now. And if there's one thing I love more than my own voice, it's hearing my voice reading closing credits. So we're going to do that. Vox Podcasting is headed up by Marty Moe and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nishat Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. The logo is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Production manager is Alex Ulrich. Our production coordinator is Paige Bethman. Our podcast editor is Peter Leonard. Uh, audio engineering and post-production are thanks to P3 Post. This episode was recorded in two locations. You couldn't tell thanks to the seamless magic of our audio engineering. Uh, I was recording from the podcast studio at Village Workspaces in Santa Monica, California, and our wonderful guests were recording in the studio at Vox Media Headquarters in New York. Our recording engineer this week was Che Brooks. We'll be back next week with another person from the World of Arts and Entertainment who I think is interesting. But until then, make sure that your comedy news sources are above reproach. 